Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down Three dead. Three women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building. And a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. History of evolution has taught us it's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Hello and welcome. This is Bite the Pen. I'm Jen. And sitting across from me is Miss Charlotte Martinez. Hello, Charlotte. Hello, Jen. We are on part two of the twilight zone. <laughs> Say it with us, everybody. <laughs> Same impulse. Last week, we talked about background and Rod Serling, the creator, and we talked a little bit about our first theme and two episodes. And so today, we'll just continue off from where we were. And again, these are from the book that we read. His name is Stuart Stanyard, and the book is Dimensions of the Twilight Zone. So our first theme is human psyche. The human psyche is the totality of the human mind that helps us navigate through life. Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytical theory of personality states that the three levels of our personalities are the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, and the unconscious mind. And his his quotes are less intelligent about the theme, I think. <laughs> I mean, because he, he doesn't bother with like, well, you guys know psychology, so you can discern your own stuff. <laughs> but he does, he does kind of tap on, well, his quote, this is Stanyard from the book, quote, struggle of man's conscious allowing inner self to surface. Most of these episodes will see the inner psyche trying to come out. The other thing he says, it's the episodes are about the limitless power of the mind. So it includes mental breakdowns, telepathy, mind over matter themes, dream state. Ah. Uh (laughs) And he adds that we've heard how science has measured the energy of one person's mind and that a single brain has enough power to light an entire city. Imagine the limitless powers that have gone untapped and the abilities we've overlooked in ourselves. Mind over matter. (laughs) That's like my favorite one. Really? Ooh, cool. Yeah. The theory that we only use 10% of our brain. It means that we can mess with any sort of dimension and imagination and concept. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Because it's all there, potentially, somewhere in our brains. That's like limitless, right? Where they take a pill and they can use the full capacity of their brain. Yeah. Or that movie with Scarlett Johansson. That was such a good movie. It was good. You should go watch it. Yeah. Because it's good. (laughs) Tell us what it is and go watch it. Yeah. I honestly can't remember the name of it. <laughs> we don't have Wi-Fi either, so we can't help yeah, you. <laughs> sorry. You can look it up on your own time. 
The first episode in this section of the human psyche that we'll talk about is a stop at Willoughby which is actually one of my favorite episodes. Um, this is season one, episode 30, so it's pretty late into the season. It was written by Rod Serling. We we didn't actually on purpose pick a majority of Rod's work. I mean, he wrote a majority of it, but we only picked like a couple, one or two maybe, that have other writers. And I think that goes to show how much we love him as a writer. <laughs> Agreed. Do you want to tell us about the... Yeah. (laughs) So the way we set up the intro to each episode was the three factors of the main formula of Twilight Zone, which is the hero, the magic, and then the ironic twist or the dark irony at the end. So I'm going to give you a summary for this episode based on that formula. An extremely stressed advertising executive, Williams, is in a terrible life slump, and his only relief is a reoccurring dream he has on his train ride back home. So the magic, as things at work and at home get worse, Williams finds that he's able to dwindle in the dream longer each time until he can finally step off the train into his dreamlike... uh, It's actually a town, a quaint small town. You can see the town square and all the pleasant folks like (laughs) just walking along like... There's no cares in the world, and he's coming from this extremely stressful, depressing atmosphere. Everyone's horrible. His wife is horrible. His boss is horrible. Even the secretary was, like, really horrible. So I'm glad that that's his opposite, his paradise, which is the rural, slower, sleepy almost town, but not, like, boring. Yeah. Like, kids walking around and people waving hello. Exactly. You know, when everybody wasn't in quarantine. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) So then the ironic twist is that, meanwhile, in the waking world, this is after he stepped off the train in his dream state. So meanwhile, in the waking world, Williams's corpse is surrounded by police who label his case suicide and then cart his body off in a morgue vehicle labeled Willoughby. So the idea was that he jumped off the train in real life, even though in the dream he decided to step off. So this could actually fit under the death and dying theme, too. Right. But I I understand why it's more in this theme. And that's something we can talk about right now. Cool. I I do have a clip. Willoughby. The stop is Willoughby. What do you mean? Willoughby? Where is Willoughby? That's Willoughby right outside. Oh, wait a minute. What's going on? There's no stop on this line called Willoughby. And look at it outside. The sun is out. It's summer. That's what she is, mid-July. A real warm one, too. Wait a minute. It's November. What's going on here, anyway? It's November. Where is this place? Where is Willoughby? Willoughby, sir? That's Willoughby right outside. So I think they said Willoughby like eight times in that clip. Willoughby? (laughs) But I love his answer. He's like, where is Willoughby? And he's like, right there. (laughs) This is Willoughby. (laughs) I really like this episode, and I always have. I, I like the dark irony the twist at the end especially since it's so juxtaposed to when he awakes on this train and the conductor of the fake train or his mental train is saying next stop willoughby he's so like happy yeah and like everything's lighter out and then for willoughby to be the name of the funeral home is just sort of a weird i don't know it felt more like fate to me than it did a predestination exactly i read that this was Serling's favorite episode for season was one. It? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like a scenario of dark fate. This was supposed to happen this way. And even his dialogue oh, for his exit lesson, for example, Serling's exit, maybe it's a wishful thinking nestled in a hidden part of man's mind, or maybe it's the last stop in the vast design of things. 
beautiful. It's yeah. It feels like you know all of that was supposed to happen. And even though it seems depressing in real life, I thought for some <laughs> reason the char- the main character Williams, was gonna die in his sleep because he kept holding his stomach. Yeah. Insinuating that maybe he was ill and was just gonna end up not waking up in his nap. So when it was a suicide, I was like, I don't know about that part. I don't know if that part was necessary. But, you know, there was a certain amount of you step off the train, you jump off the train. Right, right. So maybe that works for that. I like your version better because it makes more sense. And it's gentler. I didn't feel prepped or primed for that reality. That's it. You're right. That's what felt weird. But I also want to talk about the symbolism of trains in this. Ooh, okay. I wrote a short story that had a lot of these same feelings and themes. Nice. In my short story, it was a ghost train that never, not derailed, a lot. <laughs> That's dramatic. <laughs> it always just rode and rode. Oh, okay. In this version, it says, well, it's summer out there. And in my story, it was summer when it was supposed to be snowing. Ooh. So I was like, okay, there's a lot of symbolism coming up from even my story. And I had never seen this Twilight Zone episode. So I'm going to look up train symbolism yeah. to see why... There's so many similarities there. And it did say the train symbolized transformation, a journey, new opportunities, inspiration, transition. Have you ever had dreams with trains in them? I did. Actually, pretty recently I had one, which was a, it was a train out of its time. So it was like from the, when they had steam trains. I don't know when that was, 1800s. Uh-huh. But it took place in modern time. So it's kind of cool. I mean, I don't recall having any other train dreams that I can remember. So it seems more romantic to us. But I, I thought that was really fascinating. And I think it worked for this too, because it was a passage to death, basically. It was, yeah. it was how he and transitioned happiness. to the afterlife and yeah. happiness. Yeah. Again, that was a concept in my short story is that this was his heaven, which may also seem like a dark fate, like you said. Not if it's written that way, you right. know? And that's what I got from the Willoughby story, is that it was written that way. The other theme I was wondering about, and because there's going to be other episodes that touch on this too, which is the city life versus small town life. That was a big part of a lot of the episodes that were written by people that weren't on staff. Um, For some reason, there were quite a few, and it was popular at the time. I mean, westerns were a big thing. So there was a lot of country versus city episodes, and then not only versus, but then episodes that completely took place in a country setting. Uh, Rod Serling, he, he liked it, but he, he felt like they had enough of them after a while, oh, so they yeah. stopped doing them. And I was like, that makes sense. Part one of this episode, we introduced the Cold War dynamics and the insecurities and industrial life. Everybody was feeling very buried and afraid. So I think the country life then equal paradise, slow life. With the, justice. The good old days, swift yeah. justice. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of bad things about it too, don't get me wrong. I meant that as a good thing. Oh. Because, I mean, I feel like with the war, there's like all this conflict and nobody can make a decision and there's all these political stuff. But when it was back in the day in the West, somebody did something, you just like hung them. <laughs> oh my God. Or, and then you'd usually get hung or shot for doing that. But like, you know what I mean? There was like a lot more swift justice as opposed to everything just falling apart like oh. in the Cold War. I see. I see. And well, and at the time, to be fair, the small town life also meant that there was fewer people. So when everybody knew each other, they had some accountability. And when things got rough, you sort of had a family dynamic versus a capitalist dynamic. So I think, I mean, this is my opinion. I think that these episodes were reflecting that mentality. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that his paradise after the capitalist environment would be 
this very small town summer scene. Right. And you notice they always show the town square in most of those scenes. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it makes sense. That was the place of community, your gathering, your... Totally. Your your heart of the town. And there was actually an episode that, I mean, we didn't get to watch it, but one of the Twilight Zone episodes that I remember liking that actually took place in the country was this guy and his dog. And he goes to, like, the gates of heaven and they invite him in. And his dog starts and he wants to see his wife and his dog starts barking and he won't go in. And he's like, can I bring my dog? And the guy's like, no, but you can come. And he's like, well, I'm not going to leave my dog. And so he walks away and he gets approached by this guy and he's like, I'm glad you said no, because that was the devil. (gasps) And here's the actual pearly gates. And so him and his dog get to go off. I'm just like, it's so sweet. I want to watch that one. Yeah, we could totally watch that one. (laughs) But like some of the country ones are just kind of, I guess they're not for me. It doesn't, I don't, I don't get it. And I think that reflects on our personal backgrounds too, where we grew up and what we feel as safe. Totally. Put a girl from the valley in the middle of the country and she's just going to die waiting for a cell phone connection. Oh. (laughs) I'm not from the valley, just to be clear. Right, right. (laughs) This is an example. Yeah, for sure. So Sterling's exit lesson Maybe it's a wishful thinking nestled in a hidden part of man's mind. Or maybe it's the last stop in the vast design of things. Or perhaps for a man like Williams, who climbed on a world that went by too fast, it's a place around the bend where he could jump off. Thanks, Rod. Can you just imagine all the cigarette smoke around his face right now? (laughs) Uh, So next we'll talk about the episode The Mind and the Matter. Uh, That's season two. Episode 27. It was written by Rod Serling. Do you want to tell us about it? When an introverted and overstimulated Mr. Beechcroft is offered a book on how the mind can overpower matter, he uses this knowledge to concentrate people away, leaving Beechcroft entirely alone in his once bustling city. When Beechcroft's inner consciousness begins an uncomfortable dialogue about loneliness, he tries to distract himself by changing the weather But when that doesn't work, he decides to bring people back, but only people that act and look exactly like him. So you get these weird scenes where there's a woman, like she's dressed in a dress, but then she turns her face and it's his face. (laughs) So it's corny. That's what I mean. I enjoyed that. But the twist, when confronted with so many versions of himself, Beechcroft realizes he doesn't like being such an introvert and instead practices his extroversy. Is that a word? Extroversy? Extroversion. Extroversion? He tries to be an extrovert. (laughs) What did you think overall? It made sense in terms of the greater balance. Um, I think episodes like this are really imperative to making everything else feel digestible. (laughs) Because otherwise it becomes too much. Even if it's not very dark at the end for certain episodes, it still feels like a lot. So I feel like episodes like this are important for that sake. It's not one of my favorites, but I think that's just because it's like, quirky and it doesn't and I'm used to the Twilight Zone like messing me up but I do appreciate that he's I would say he was a hermit if he didn't work in the city and have to talk to people all day and everybody's pretty nice to him if it was more like a stop at Willoughby where everybody was terrible to you well then I'd be like yeah let's wish those people away (laughs) shall we yeah but you're right this was a situation where the stakes weren't that high he had the trial and error opportunities that didn't mean life or death so it felt easier and I guess yeah the stakes were not as high I mean, he just seems bitter, right. but it's not like we discover what 
can change that. Like, he doesn't become not bitter <laughs> at the end. He's still bitter. He's just grumbling to himself and trying his best to not be so bitter. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's like the smallest change you could ask for. And I think that's what I think that's right about the stakes. It also looked like it was shot differently. Did you notice that? Maybe it was just me. Like, the set felt different in that episode oh. than it did in other episodes for some reason. Interesting. I don't quite remember, but I bet you you're right. I don't know. What I, uh, there's just something about that episode. Uh, there's something different about it, and I don't know what it is because it's written by Rod. They do use, in order for the inner conscious dialogue to come across, they use mirrors. They right. have his reflection talking to him. <laughs> what do you think of the use of mirrors? Because we'll talk about this more. More episodes do this. It's a big theme in the Twilight Zone. There are so many episodes that use mirrors in different ways and in different situations and in, in different like amounts. But there's a lot of mirrors. And I don't usually like mirrors that much in stories. I mean, they freak me out. So, like, there, yeah, one of the episodes we'll talk about later is definitely one that creeps me out. And there's use of a mirror and it just, like, makes my hair stand up. Like, it's just chilling. Mirrors are untrustworthy, and I think that's why. Like, it's, it is a reflection, but it's, like, the dead version of you. It's not, like, the real... I don't know. These freak me out. <laughs> and the unknown. That's one of the, I think, collective conscious symbolisms that are repeated throughout cultures and history. Because at first, it's the shadow. That's all they can see is a shadow. We start having reflective surfaces, so it's the reflection. So any sort of opposite of us feels like an id, like an opposite, like a doppelganger so we visually can see something other than our exterior self so i think that theme starts to play out in darker stories yeah and that's probably why it freaks, it freaks me out too that's Does probably it? why <laughs> it's the unknown isn't it yeah i've never thought about that in, in that way before it is very unnatural i mean especially such a clear image seeing yourself in water is different right much different than seeing yourself in something as reflective as a mirror right interesting of course, it was funny in this one, so... Totally. <laughs> we'll talk about it more in the other one. Uh, yeah, yeah. This was just kind of like a nice little light break, actually. <laughs> I did like that the magical element was a book. Yeah, that was actually really cool. So his friend gives it... Well, his friend, the guy that spilled coffee on him in the beginning, gives him this book, and it's like about training your mind to make things happen not magical things just like little things and it's very like new age hippie kind of book yeah and then it's like all of a sudden he's got this like power and he starts like going and i'm like this is great i feel like this is a high school or a middle school student wrote this yeah <laughs> power of concentration i think is the idea and it's interesting because i think the boomers if they watched this episode they would definitely recognize that that was their work mentality that they felt bombarded and like a machine and you just repeat it and that was going to be the rest of your life yeah so if the boomers at the time could remember that i feel like something like a book that told them like oh but you can concentrate and make things different could be right. really a relief yeah i mean even today i'm sure a lot of us feel like that so we can oh, yeah. concentrate and go to your happy place <laughs> what do we do now go to our willoughby happy willoughby oh god <laughs> So Serling's intro for this episode, quote, a child of the 20th century, a product of the population explosion and one of the inheritors of the legacy of progress. In just a moment, our hero will begin his personal one man rebellion against the mechanics of his age. And you watch the episode and then you hear the exit lesson. Quote, the best part. Best part. Mr. Beechcroft, a child of the 20th century who has found out through trial and error and mostly error 
that with all its faults, it may well be that this is the best of all possible worlds. People, notwithstanding, it has much to offer. So the last episode under the human psyche theme that we'll talk about is the masks. Such a creepy episode. So good. This is actually season five. I mean, at this point, Rod wasn't in town, I don't think, anymore. He was teaching. He would get the script and they would shoot him in front of like a wall and then they'd cut it in. Um, so this episode is an hour long instead of the typical like 22 minute episodes. This came out on March 20th, 1964, and it was written by Rod Sterling. So our hero, an elderly and wealthy Mr. Foster on his deathbed, invites his daughter's family to visit him in his mansion to say their goodbyes. The magic, before granting their inheritance, however, Foster challenges his daughter, son-in-law, and two grandchildren to wear masks that reflect their inner faults. And these are like really ugly looking masks. And actually, I'm going to play the clip where he describes what each fault is for each family member because I was going to write it out. But I'm like, actually, this clip would work even better because the way he says it is important, I I think. Why, indeed, Emily, because you're cruel and miserable people. Because none of you respond to love. Emily responds only to what her petty hungers dictate. Wilfred responds only to things that have weight and bulk and value. He feels books. He doesn't read them. He appraises paintings. He doesn't seek out their truth or their beauty. And Paula there lives in a mirror. The world is nothing to her but a reflection of herself and her brother. Humanity to him is a small animal caught in a trap to be tormented. His pleasure is the giving of pain. And from this, he feels the same sense of fulfillment most human beings get from a kiss or an embrace. Your caricatures, all of you, without your masks, your caricatures. That's such a good clip, right? Your caricatures, all of you. Which is very appropriate. Yeah. Because then the twist. So at the end of the night, Foster has died. And the family, relieved for their share of the inheritance, finally remove their masks, only to find that their real faces have molded permanently to their ugly personalities forever. Yeah. Which is like literally, they're wearing their inner on their outer. Yeah. <laughs> and I was really surprised when, I I mean, I've seen it before, but I did not remember all the details. And I expected the mask not to come off. Oh, like right. Like they couldn't take them off. But they do. They take them right off. And I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't remember that. But it's that their faces have shaped into the mold of the mask, which I think is almost scarier. Yeah. Because then it's like you're not even this. You're wearing yourself. There's no like changing that. And it's just really messed up and cool. It's, again, appropriate fate. Justice is done. So I feel like that's the cathartic part. These characters are unlikable. So by the end, when this happens to them and the old man passes peacefully, he was the only justice doer. Which is cool because his mask is a skull. And then I like when he takes his mask off, it's his face. Right. It's not the skull. And it's peaceful. And... Yeah. It's like he was worthy of the the magic. How that works in the magical realm is really cool. It's so just. Maybe that's why I like it. I just, I love the the idea of there being true justice, and you get that in this episode. And even his two butlers, or his, his assistant and his butler, those two guys. Doctor, I think. Doctor? Do- oh, doctor, yeah. A butler and a doctor. They, I like 
that dynamic too. It was kind of cool to see like three old guys kind of looking out for each other. Yeah, that they were already a family, like more so than his real family. Yeah, I kind of wanted him them to get the inheritance. <laughs> I actually thought, yeah, I was sort of expecting that, but maybe that's not the point because the agreement with Mr. Foster and his family was that as long as you keep these masks on until midnight, this is Mardi Gras in New Orleans, and you can have your inheritance. So they kind of have to, quote unquote, suffer for a few hours with the masks on. And they whine like crazy. The whole time. The whole time they whine. And you're just like, yeah, just have that dark fate happen, man. They yeah. deserve it. Just yeah. do it. Just do it. And just like the, the whole time, even when they're not being annoying, which is always even more so, he's sick and dying and everything's about them. I can't even imagine to be in that position where he's looking at his family that's going to, like, take over what he worked his whole life for. Oh, God. And he's, like, sick, and his daughter keeps complaining that she's too hot or she's, like, feeling ill. And I'm like, oh, really? I'm so sorry for you. Excuse me while your father dies in front of your face. So I feel like money corrupts. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad you actually brought that up because that was a note that I also had here. I went deeper into the masking and Mardi Gras theme. Because cool. I thought it was interesting. And I, I mean, everybody kind of knows that masks are supposed to be uh, a different personality or your alter ego. It can be your alter ego or it can be differentiating your class, disguising your class. Oh. So you weren't you in any case. And everything became more fair and undistinguishable. It was ironic for this case where they're all wealthy. I mean, his mansion's huge. And of course, he can afford a butler and a doctor. Of course. <laughs> but... um. So it was interesting. And they're talking about inheritance and they're already wealthy. His daughter and their family are already wealthy. They have everything they ever need and they're still awful people. So the fact that they put on masks that reflect who they really are on the inside is a kind of twist of that concept because usually people wear it to be somebody else. Gotcha. Right? So I thought that worked really well. Mardi Gras would be fun. (laughs) <laughs> you just want to like wear masks and dance that's all you want that's really do. yeah i keep thinking of masquerades you know if anybody hosts one out there yeah. i would love to come i mean probably not for a couple months but yes right not right now never know to me that inner psychology speaks even more in masks and masquerades and yeah. putting on a face and oh, all of that feels so rich to me with material yeah. So maybe that's why I'm like obsessed with it. But and it's it's very of the South. Is it? I mean it's in the South, but like oh, well. yeah. the traditionally speaking, it feels like something of the South. Wow. You know, and you tend to like things like that as well. I mean, that tends to have like a lot of rich storytelling mm. and a lot of history behind it that isn't black and white. Oh, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Sterling's exit for the masks. Mardi Gras, the dramatist persona being four people who come to celebrate and in a sense let themselves go. This they do with a vengeance. They now wear the faces of all that was inside them. They'll wear them for the rest of their lives, said lives now to be spent in the shadow. Tonight's tale of the men, the macabre, and masks on the Twilight Zone. What does macabre mean? I think it's like dark and spooky. I I was going to look it up, but I don't have the internet. (laughs) According to dictionary.com, gruesome and horrifying, ghastly, horrible, of pertaining to, dealing with, or representing death, especially its grimmer or uglier aspect, or suggestive of the allegorical dance of death. 
Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> if only you could see Did her expression. <laughs> So much material there. Wow. Okay. So in about six months, tune back in and we can read her script live. It'll be great. Or a story, I should say. Sorry. (laughs) Great. It could be so many things. (laughs) Cool, cool. The next theme on our list is one of my favorites, is the mob slash herd mentality. Uh, The definition of a herd mentality psychologically describes how people can be influenced by their peers to adopt certain behaviors on a largely emotional rather than rational basis. That doesn't feel at all like what's happening right now. Not at all. (laughs) Honestly, in some of humanity's worst actions, things that have happened that humans have done have been due to her or have been part of herd mentality. Um, I wouldn't say it was from herd mentality, but it definitely, you know, picks up steam when people go into like a I don't even know what to call it. (laughs) And it, you know, it makes sense. It's a very primitive reaction. Yeah. And when you have support in your primitive reactions, that's that makes the action even scarier. Because I think it's it's interesting. But I was going to share three ways to avoid being part of herd mentality. And I wrote this about two weeks ago. (laughs) So now it seems extra important. Wow. So there are a couple, I think it's interesting, so I'm just going to share it. Yes, please do. Please do. There are a couple really simple things that you can do to avoid becoming part of a herd mentality. The top three that I'm going to list are these. Stop being on autopilot. It's a really big one. Be aware of ways in which stress affects your decision making and be willing to stand out. I feel like with those three main ones from an article, and I'll post the, the article on Twitter, those three really stood out to me because they feel like the things that are the easiest to either do and not realize, like autopilot, to do and not realize states how you're affected by stress and the decisions you make in that state. And be willing to stand out is always one that's like the most difficult. But if you do the other two things, it follows, I think. Yeah, agreed. Can I can I just mention, because for record, at, at the moment, there's a outbreak and everybody's going to know what I mean because this, <laughs> this is the only thing happening for, for a few generations here. The coronavirus is happening now. So New Mexico is not the worst off state. We have schools that are shut down, though, and we have most of our public places shut down, but it's mainly for prevention. So we're not quite at at the, you know, I'm going to go start looting. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. This is this is appropriate f- for reminding ourselves that, hey, we're we're bigger and better than this. We are. <laughs> what am I trying to say? We're evolved. Oh. We've evolved. <laughs> so I like I like those those guidelines. Rule of three, we'll call it. Yeah, super simple, and I think that's the key to it, right? And keeping your head on straight is harder to do when everyone around you doesn't. Yeah. But I think those people that do are the the key components to, to staggering this out. And that's what I've been reading a lot, mostly from what I've read. The social distancing aspect of a pandemic like this is to stagger people's sickness, Yes. Because that way there's time for people to get masks again and to get toilet paper. Not that they need that for this. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, by staggering it out, you you have a, you have more options. Agreed. So, yeah. And again, it's not, I mean, it's it's deadly, but it's not, you know, Black Plague deadly like we were talking about. So it, it's always nice to have people that are calm <laughs> and not freaking out just because everything is saying you should. And this is where the worth of an individual means 
even more. Absolutely. Great tie-in. So the episode we're going to talk about is also one of my favorites. I guess I'm going to say that for all these episodes for the most part. They're all good. (laughs) The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Uh, This is season one, episode 22, uh, written by Rod Sterling. Yes, thank you. And I always equate it. This is not part of the Twilight Zone, but I always equate it to the Burbs. That film that I love with Tom Hanks yeah. and Carrie Fisher. If you've seen it, it's that kind of a thing, but not a comedy at all. One of the taglines for the Burbs was like, never, never live on a cul-de-sac or something like that because there's no way out. Oh, oh <laughs> ouch. <laughs> Which I used to as a kid when I, when I watched this episode, I was a kid in a, in a house that was at a cul-de-sac. So it was great. I loved it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I never thought of that before. But I, it's, it's suburbia both in the burbs, obviously, and the monsters are due on Maple Street. And it, it kind of speaks, I feel like it's almost a little insulting to suburbanites, but also they need to learn this. So pay attention. Tell us about it, please. <laughs> a suburban neighborhood loses power after what they believe is a meteor passing over their atmosphere. While relatively calm at first, the town's concerns grow to hysteria when their machine's unusual behavior is blamed on an alien presence among them. By nighttime, their fears turn to paranoia, warranting violence and murder among each other. So the twist, as the camera zooms away from the street's hysteria, the audience sees two aliens packing up their equipment, satisfied that their method of invading Earth by turning off the humans' machines and watching them destroy each other will be more than sufficient. Yes. And I have a clip. Understand the procedure now. Throw them into darkness for a few hours and then sit back and watch the pattern. They pick the most dangerous enemy they can find. And it's themselves. Then I take it this place is not unique. By no means. Their world is full of maple streets. And we'll go from one to the other and let them destroy themselves. Well, let them destroy themselves. Like, that is how humanity is going to die out. Or if aliens do take over at some point, that's all they need to do. Because I swear, if we don't evolve some more, that's going to be our demise. Yeah, Americans. How dare you let aliens outwit us by letting them assume we're going to kill each other off? How dare you? It's so clever. I, and I would like to think aliens would act cleverly. And there's actually a few episodes I'll talk about this theme is that, no, they don't invade with quick violence. They invade with intelligence, observation, and it's so easy because <sighs> we're so predictable. Yes. Yeah. And we're pretty uh, primitive still. Yeah. What did you think in general? I think the interesting seed planted at the beginning about the alien among them and it came from a child who was reading this. It felt like, really, you're going to believe a kid who reads sci-fi? Like, yeah, the meteor was very tangible to them as grown-ups, quote-unquote grown-ups, and <laughs> suburban grown-ups out of all people who are used to like, hey, neighbor, nice grass. You know, like that's the kind of people they are. And to go from that to could be one of us, and then all of them lose their shit. I'm yes. Like, really? That's what got you? This fiction concept is the one that turned into paranoia. But then I thought about it and I was like, actually, that makes sense. Because an idea is very strong. Right. When heard, your conscious soaks it in and then it grows. Yeah. So it makes sense that it would grow quickly. 
under these circumstances. Yeah. I, I just think about it like in context, like the smaller context is you, you see a horror film and they don't show you the bad guy, right? Or the creature, whatever it is. And you fill it in with your head and it's freaky because you don't know what it actually is. You're making it something. Right. And then imagine that happening in your regular life, you know, where there's fear on top of it. Real fear, not just, you know, uh, what do they call that when you... It doesn't matter. Sorry. It's <laughs> okay. Like, I don't know how to describe it. Okay. <laughs> it's like taking that and, and putting it where you live and the people that live around you. I think if you and I were in this situation with anyone probably in this town, it would not turn out like that. It felt like commentary on suburbia. But I do think it speaks to most of humanity. <laughs> yeah. <it laughs> or at does. least a lot. Tangible fear. Is that what you were talking about maybe? Like so when you when you think of fear it when it doesn't actually affect you versus fear that might affect you. Yeah. Or or vicarious fear. Oh yeah. I mean you can be frightened in a in a horror film and that's acceptable and that's why you do it. Right. Safe. 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 Yeah. You can have all the emotions connected to it without losing any part of your human self, right? In the situation that's Obviously, it's like comes true. Well, what would your town be like? Or what would your block be like? Or what would your apartment complex be like? You know? Right. Ooh. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> but I do like that beginning. Like, I mean, the kid is reading the comic book and they see the... They don't even know what it is. But I, I like that the true first thing is the lights. Isn't it the... Or is it the car? I think the car's first. Oh, is the car first? Yeah. Okay. Because it's still daylight when the car goes off. Yeah. Okay. That makes but sense. But that's... Again, that's a weird thing, but it doesn't feel scary enough. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like it, yeah. So you're right. The, by the time the lights start flickering, that's more scary. Well, yeah. What, what but say? I still think it's pretty tame. You know, the guy goes to his car and... Oh, no, he doesn't go to his car. His car starts on its own. And it's, like you said, it's very simple and small and it's strange and I would be of concern, but the mob forms pretty quickly because they then start accusing this guy and saying his family is weird and they don't go out a lot. And I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) people in apartment complexes would never say that about anybody. They'd be like, I have no idea. Like I try to ignore my neighbors. And then by the light flickering, I like the light flickering. It's just, it's really simple once they start throwing blame around and it's not even all the lights at the beginning. It's just like a light or two would go on and off. And that could be literally anything. That could be the electric company. You know what I mean? Right. And that comes into play later, too. I just like the build, I guess, uh, especially as you can hear in the clip. I think the two characters, because they do have a light and dark character, which I appreciate because I think in these scenarios that would exist. And I'm going to call him the good guy is very rational and he tries to mediate and calm everybody down he's the one that first says i'll go and see what's going on and for some reason he doesn't i forget what stops him because i think that's something i would suggest why don't one of us go and find out and then come back this is a very basic strategy right rather than staying there and freaking out you're actually doing something about it yeah and problem solving yeah Ooh, that's something i think is going to be big too yeah and in mob mentalities whenever there's a problem it's the idea of trying to solve it rather than panic about it yeah (laughs) Because then you feel like you're being productive rather than just waiting for something to happen to you. Yeah, and feeding the fear. Exactly. Yeah. That would save me in this situation. Which would require you going off of autopilot. Exactly. Oh, yes, you're right. So that is the step number one. I mean, I don't know if it is, but I think at some point one guy leaves and he's going to go over to the next town over because that's they think it's him when he's walking back. Then they're like, no, that's not him. Who is that? Oh, my God. <laughs> that was not funny. I'm sorry, sorry. But they do. Yeah, they shoot the guy and kill him. 
the Actually, electrical worker. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the guy who's trying to solve the problem. The guy who's trying to solve the problem gets shot. Oh my god, that would be me then. <laughs> How would you describe the bad guy then? Oh, that- he's such a good bad guy. He's the way I think a lot of people would react. And it's gung-ho, accusatory, but still kind of in the background. Like, he wasn't like the main woman who was just, like, accusing everybody really loudly. Right. And he was the first one to accuse the kid. Right. Right. At that point, it was like, oh, my God, this adult human man just pointed to the kid and said, he's the alien. And that was when the good guy was like, "Okay, (laughs) I see what's happening. This is all too far. Yeah, we're losing it. Um, And he runs off. He tells her to run and, and he runs off. But I think his approach for being the strong man and kind of hanging back a little bit, but still saying what he thinks. And like, I just think that that's a really honest depiction of what maybe a lot of people might, they might step into that role. Yeah. Because they feel like that's one of the roles they can step into, which is not a good reason. That's not a good reason to step into a role. (laughs) And I was surprised a lot of the, or maybe there was one good wife, one bad wife as well. Actually, the bad guy's wife was the calm one. Yeah. Was the one saying like, no, calm down. This is not what's happening. Yeah. She again felt like the mediator, but in a way that was, how stupid are you guys? Like, no, calm down. This isn't how we live. Can I remind you of that, please? (laughs) And I, I liked that because I feel the wife could say that more clearly and convincingly than men who try to step up, at least in this age, in this suburbia. Yeah. That's what the role they step into right. wives can come out and re- remind them like no we understand our mentalities on a normal basis so let's try to bring that back and calm down Ugh. can you imagine just say you just made me think of a bunch of things but like oh. can you imagine like a black person being in that situation or a latinx person oh my god gosh they right. would have been first on the chopping block <laughs> and do you think that would happen um, with a mix of class and race and I mean, in this situation with the in the suburbs, probably, but I don't think generally speaking out in the real world, I don't think that would be the cause or I mean, I don't know, maybe I don't know with all the stuff that's been going on with police shootings and there's still a lot of hatred towards people of color, towards gender, towards all kinds of things. So maybe, maybe, I don't know. It just depends on the community, I guess. Like if I were in like South L.A., Um. I think they might blame the one white person there. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It just depends on where you are. (laughs) Exactly. Or who is the minority. Right. Interesting. Because it it could even be economic class. Mm -hmm. And whoever the minority is in economic classes, because it could be like the one rich person. Right. You blame that guy or or the one poor person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See? You're right. It's scary, but I have hope in people. I think those people tend to get what's coming to them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Don't they attack the, the bad guy? Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, because yeah. his lights start going on and on and off in his house. And then you start seeing glass breaking and shots fired and people screaming. And Oh, my gosh. You're right. <laughs> Whew. Yeah, that was tough. And again, I mean, despite it being black and white, it still felt like a good buildup. It was all believable. That's also why I don't believe in guns, but I would totally have shot myself on accident. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the, do you want to hear the, oh, anything? Yes. The no. exit? Yes. The way he ends it, this I think this is the only episode he opens up to reality, and you'll see why. The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill, and suspicion can destroy, 
and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own. And the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the Twilight Zone. Because he's right. This is the time he's like, no, you should all be worried because I'm not telling a story. This Are you paying happens. attention? Yeah. This is not confined in the Twilight Zone. Gosh. I also do like, I didn't notice it the first time, but I like that he's talking about prejudice, but he says in the minds of men. So I'm like, hmm, do you mean that? Or are you just being like sexist? I'm just going to go with you mean that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Women inherit the earth. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. The next theme is death and dying. How fun. I could define death and dying, but I think you all know what that is. <laughs> alive and dead so stanier does have a cool quote on death and dying when he introduces this theme he says quote we can deny the truth and think we can cheat death attempt to run away from it or hide in the shadows but eventually we must come to the soothing understanding that nothing lasts forever and i think i i wrote down one little thing and i i think it's from the episode itself but death is a whisper not an explosion and i just feel like that's Willoughby too you know I mean even though he jumped off a train it didn't feel that way it felt like a whisper and I think that's that's influenced from T.S. Eliot's poem isn't it the hollow man it has to and be. this is the way the world ends not with a bang but with a whimper I mean at <sighs> least that's what the connection I made when I heard that Interesting. It, it tends to repeat that sensation that this is not how the world will end it's not going to be a huge big deal like we all fear it's going to be it's going to happen and we'll be like, oh, was that it? <laughs> did, I, did I miss it? Oh, okay. Exactly. <laughs> so the episode we'll be talking about in this category is Nothing in the Dark. It was season three, episode 16, written by George Clayton Johnson. So not our Mr. Rod Serling. <gasps> and George Clayton Johnson was the one who wrote Cannonball Run and what were the other ones I said? wrote a bunch of oh he wrote the first oceans 11 he was oh, a really popular well-known writer and let's see this came out in 1962 do you want to tell us about it absolutely <laughs> so the hero an elderly woman living alone in a tiny hovel that's what it looks like to me, uh, <laughs> scheduled to be torn down actually stays indoors convinced that the figure of death will find her and take her life but when a wounded officer convinces the old woman to let him in, she describes her anxiety and fears to him as he mends, because he's like shot, until they're interrupted by a construction worker who warns that she must actually evacuate by the next day because they're going to pulverize the, the remaining buildings. So the twist is now that her fears are heightened, the old woman only feels relief when the wounded officer finally reveals his actual identity and eases her into the peaceful crossover. And he, like, takes her hand. Like, he's, it's not even, like, a sinister, like, I'm going to make you, you know what I mean? He he helps her up, and he takes her with him, and it's kind of sweet. And Stanyard says this is, I'm nodding my head agreeing, by the way. <laughs> Stanyard says this is one of the only episodes where they wanted to depict death as a positive thing, as a next chapter thing. And that's actually the clip I picked. Because there was a part of that clip that I didn't remember, which was the thing that actually got her to take his hand. And it, it, oh. it went by really quickly, but he said, mother, it can insinuate a lot. Maybe she had a child and, or maybe the, the mother clicked in her head as something to feel like trustworthy, oh. whatever that meant, mother. Or respect. Yeah. Or respect even. Yeah. Was the trigger. 
that got her to take the hand. And I was like, what? How did I miss that the first time? I didn't get it the first time. It was subtle. It was really subtle. Interesting. So after that word, mother, but then he he does have that line of it's it's just a whisper. Um, it's not a bang. And it's it's just the next the next step. It's just the beginning. It's not the end. Right. So there's a lot of poetic references. The beginning part reminded me of how C.S. Lewis ended the Narnia series. Oh. The story was only the first page of a book that goes on and on in which every chapter is better than the one before it. Interesting. So all of those are very uplifting and inspiring about death being just a next part rather than something to be feared. Right. So I really... Like, love that end quote, which I will play right now. Cool. The running's over. It's time to rest. Give me your hand. But I don't want to die. Trust me. No. Mother. Give me your hand. <laughs> you see? No shock, no engulfment, no tearing asunder. What you feared would come like an explosion is like a whisper. What you thought was the end, the beginning. When will it happen? When will we go? Go? We have already begun. Gosh, that's such a good episode. I love that clip. And that episode. <laughs> yeah, me too. And like the construction worker, he comes back at some point and he's like, oh, poor old lady or something. He says <laughs> yeah. something like that. It's a nice touch because there is that, but that's not the journey she's on anymore. Right. You right. know, I just thought that was really cool. And one of the last shots of the episode is them, their feet, like at, back at the top, right? Oh, and they're walking yeah. away together, which is also really sweet (laughs) yeah that's the crossover that's the passage right and And it's all still familiar to her it's not some crazy big thing like you said it's (sighs) it's familiar it's easy it's soft it's not horrifying like jumping off a train for instance don't do it (laughs) and i do i also wanted to ask you this idea of death who is death for you? What's your death figure? Uh-huh. Oh, and did we mention, by the way, this police officer? <laughs> this is my favorite part. The police officer was played by a young Robert Redford. I could barely tell it was him. He was just, oh, so gorgeous. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I was thinking I would want to pick him for my death figure. My <laughs> choice. And, um, and it kind of makes sense that that would be her figure of death. Mm. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Do we all have our personal death figures? Or... I, yeah, I guess so. so. I didn't really think about it that way. But yeah. I mean, he, he's nice and he's cute, but he's not my choice. No, for you sure. You know what I mean? Who would your choice be, Jen? <laughs> <laughs> I have think about it. <laughs> no idea. But I like that idea. It's like both for her, though. She's sort of afraid of him. But because of his standing, being a police officer and having seen him shot right in front of her. Right. And with him pleading, <laughs> there's a lot there you can work with. Right. That's interesting. Definitely think a young Robert Redford is a lot of people's choice right. as death. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh, okay, I'll go. See you guys later. <laughs> you make a good point. It's, he's still a trickster. This is kind of his job or death's job, whoever your death figure is. Right. Doesn't want to trick you. They don't want you to have to feel scared or frightened yeah. or, or worried about it. So, so it's, it's kind of like a white lie versus a flat out lie. Right. You know? It's a twist, not a trick. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I like that one even better. And the way he did it was clever. 
because a lot of people can't say no to a wounded person who needs your help because that makes them feel useful. Right. And sometimes that's bigger than fear. Yeah, it does make the mother statement even bigger. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I don't know what to make of that line. Well, I don't know about the line, but I, I think psychologically, I like that a lot just because she's been fighting and hiding from death for so long that she has nothing to live for. The emptiness that she's created in her life from running gets to come to an end, and that's the gift in it. The other gift is that it's not it, that it's painless. It doesn't cause her any pain, but she was probably in more pain being alive and running from death. It, it makes a lot of sense that he can represent like a child to some degree without being one. That, and you actually remind me of another quote for the scene where she remembers living in the light. And she even has a moment where she takes her hand and she puts it in the sunlight where it's streaming into her hovel. And I was like, wow, what a statement. But then she was so quick to say that. But I'd rather be alive living in the dark than not alive at all. Really? Do you believe that? I don't know if you believe that. Right. I think that's just your fear speaking. Yeah, totally. Because if you can remember what it meant to be alive, you wouldn't want to do this to yourself. Uh, yeah. Because you'd realize you're not. <laughs> right. Okay, so Serling's exit for Nothing in the Dark. There was an old woman who lived in her room. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so right? Isn't that the beginning of the yeah. window woman living in a shoe? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. There was an old woman who lived in a room and, like all of us, was frightened of the dark, but who discovered in a minute that there was nothing in the dark that wasn't there when the lights were on. <laughs> The next theme we have is redemption, which is a nice little pick-me-up. Yes. Even though the Death and Dying episode was a light one. I mean, you know what I mean. Not well, light, yeah. but... Yeah. Encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So redemption is defined by the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil, which Ooh. is all kinds of fun, right? And another, I mean, the, the other definition of it, uh, a powerful and uplifting theme that acknowledges the human potential to succeed after having failed. Ooh. Very, two very different. One is literature, yeah. a definition by, by literature standards, and the other one is more general. I felt like both of those are key to understanding the episode. So Stanyard has the following to say about redemption. Liberating stories of man's opportunity for redemption, proving that the Twilight Zone isn't just a place to punish the wicked and those who succumb to self-destruction. We see that if a person is receptive enough, there can be capacity for recovery and self-improvement. I like it. The episode that we'll talk about is called Walking Distance. It's also season one, episode five, so very early on. It was written by Rod and it came out in 1959. And I believe Charlotte will inform us on what it's about. Stressed by his job in the big city, Martin returns to his small town childhood home. Only to find, dun dun dun, it unaffected by time. He confronts his same childhood town square, the same neighbors, his parents, and his younger self. But the twist. When Martin causes his younger self to become injured, he realizes his presence is affecting the future, and Martin's childhood father gives him much-needed advice that encourages Martin to leave his innocence where it belongs and return to his adult life. It's a really nice sentiment. Yeah, yeah. But the way they did it, that seemed like a really basic thing, but the way they did it felt complex. Yeah. I also really like how they set it up. It felt very almost like Hitchcock. Like ah. he's in a car, 
He's in the middle of nowhere, kind of. He goes to the like the one gas station, and he's kind of mean to him. Yeah, like, he's kind of gruff again, another like bitter man, stressed, yeah. stressed. I just like that concept where he's like, "Oh, I've heard of that town," or whatever it was. Like he didn't say it was his hometown, and so he tells him the road to take, and then all of a sudden he's there. And I just really like that this idea of like a rest stop. This is just a momentary glimpse before you move on. Yeah. I just love that about the Twilight Zone. And I love the concept of leaving, you know, your childhood in your childhood. It seems like something you would want to go back there. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a common trope used a lot, is this idea that you can return to your innocence as an adult and expect it to answer your questions, because it won't. It, I mean, the past reminds you of things, as we see in the speech his father gives him, but it won't solve your problems to try to live there. It's psychologically damaging, and it's unnatural. That's what the future is for. That's what the definition of future is. It's going forward, and that's how we evolve. I think one of the other things that was interesting in this was that he talks to his father. Like when he goes to see his parents as an adult in this town where he's a kid, he's like trying to convince his mother. And then his mother is just like, get this crazy person out of here. But it's his dad that kind of follows him and gives and has this talk with him. I just felt like there was a lot of father-son things. Even though it's himself being a kid, it kind of feels like a father-son thing with his own self. He's probably the same age his father is when he gives him the talk. You know, I mean, talking to your father while you're his age might be odd, but sometimes you need advice from an equal mentality. His father reminding him that you're not this boy that I know. This is his summer. It's not your summer. You've already had it. He deserves to have it now. And hearing that from your own father, it's like, oh, you're protecting me by protecting this boy. Right. Because the twist is that he is affecting his future by messing with his younger self. And he's just starting to realize that. So his father not only has to stop that, but he has to convince him it's okay to leave. Yeah. And then if I can play the quote, the way he ends his speech is that his childhood is not just in these carousels and cotton candies and things that were once in your childhood. They can be there where you are. You just have to look harder. So I'm going to play that real quick here. Is it so bad where you're from? I thought so, Pop. I've been living in a dead run and I was tired. And one day I knew I had to come back here. I had to come back and get on a merry-go-round and eat cotton candy and listen to a band concert. I had to stop and breathe and close my eyes and smell and listen. I guess we all want that. Maybe when you go back, Martin, You'll find that there are merry-go-rounds and band concerts where you are. Maybe you haven't been looking in the right place. You've been looking behind you, Martin. Try looking ahead. Never not bad advice. That's always good advice. (laughs) Exactly. But the way he says it, we get what he's saying. What you want from this childhood, you can have if you look for it where you are. Yeah. I, I guess that's a trope, too, is that childhood is never gone. You just can't try to repeat something you've had before you know yeah things never happen the same way twice thank you aslan (laughs) and on that note the symbolism of not moving forward yeah uh the symbolism of carousels or merry-go-rounds as we americans like to call it i when i looked it up and it all made sense the symbolism is youth innocence memories eternal childhood Mm. a pattern that doesn't change and it said it's similar to a museum in the way that they both symbolize 
Holden not wanting to move forward. And the carousel just goes round and round eternally, never going off trajectory. Wow. Seems tragic. Right. It seems like nightmarish, actually. It Yeah, it does. I think that's why the carousel is more the dark versus happy, be lucky all the time. Yeah, especially in this episode. Right. I mean, it gets dramatic and the camera's like slanted and like everybody's like there's people screaming and then he falls off, right? Right. His younger self. He, he doesn't push him, but something happens where I thought that was and he breaks his leg. Right. And then he has a limp all of a sudden. Like, his, well, his actual self. Like, yeah. yeah. So his younger <laughs> self gets injured, but his actual self starts to he starts limping immediately because that's affected the timeline yeah carousels are so freaky i I mean i like them but like it's kind of like the circus you know like they they have this dark draw to them i think it has a lot to do with psychological symbolism the collective unconscious images that can conjure the unknown yeah and sometimes when those symbolisms come up you can feel it rather than explain it right maybe so the exit lesson, Martin Sloan, successful in most things, but not in the effort that all men try at some time in their lives, trying to go home again. And also like all men, perhaps they'll be, see, you're right, men. <laughs> and also Hard like bar. all people, Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Perhaps there'll be an occasion, maybe a summer night sometime, when we'll look up from what we're doing and listen to the distant music and hear the voices and the laughter of the people and the places of our past. So our next theme is man versus machine. A more contemporary type of conflict, the situation results from humans involved in a struggle with man-made machines. This is an external conflict. One of the examples that's relevant at the moment for us is the Terminator. That's a great example of man versus machine. So the episode we'll be talking about is called The Lateness of the Hours. It's from season two, episode eight, written by Rod Serling. A wealthy husband and wife live contently with their adult daughter in a mansion with android staff. But when their daughter starts to become frustrated with so many artificial beings, she gives her father an ultimatum, which is shut off the androids or she'll leave. So then the twist is that her father, seeing no other choice, finally reveals to her that she too is an android and therefore can never leave. So instead of treating her like a human, they reprogram her to be part of their staff. They give her a different personality that'll make her never leave. This one was disappointing. I don't know how to describe this episode. They could have gone in so many ways, and the one way they chose didn't make sense to me. But I want to hear what you thought. I found the ending, like, disturbing. Yeah. I mean, the episode was like, whatever. But the ending was so disturbing because they treat her as their daughter. They've been doing this for a long time, and they, like, respect her, whereas they don't respect the other ones, especially the wife. She's really obnoxious. It just doesn't sit right with me. I don't like it. I would have liked it better if they deactivated her and sent her to the basement with the other androids like they did in an earlier scene. Yeah. But instead they they make her the maid and then like the mother character likes getting these like long massages from these androids and she's really noisy about it and it's really distracting and weird yeah, it is. and kind of gross. And it's like the last scene is now she's doing that. She's like in a maid's outfit and and giving her mother a massage, but now she's no longer a daughter she's a staff i don't know it just didn't settle right with me i didn't like it and they didn't set it up for that scenario they did not so it, like you said before it felt like a trick rather than a twist maybe yes and like a poorer trick like at least trick us in a good way and then and it didn't help that the android daughter wasn't likable oh my god she was so annoying <laughs> 
if they had made her likable, I couldn't. I, that would have been devastating. And I don't, I don't blame the actor. She had lines that were whiny. So, I mean, maybe she could have downplayed the whining, but she whined so much. That's why I was like, deactivate her, just get rid of her. <laughs> and like, if you really want to leave, then go ahead and leave. Right. Like, right. if you really do think you're a person, why are you? What are you doing? Just go leave. And and then the dynamic with her and her father, it none of it felt authentic or believable maybe i'm not really sure it wasn't like what i remember of it's been a long time of pinocchio giuseppe cares about him there's a love there and that's not what this is even though he's sort of the creator of her there isn't really genuine love there it's all on the surface and you just scratch the surface a tiny bit and he's like okay we'll we'll make her a maid what the hell Maybe there's something to be said there that the creator tends to build their creations after themselves. And if they're reflecting themselves and they're already somewhat, they're used to luxury and routine and comfort, you know, so if something affects that, they just like shut it down. I wish they'd pick that direction. We can like try to create that in it, but it it doesn't really give you much, the episode itself, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I wish they had picked that or any version really. So it just kind of feels like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> that wasn't a waste of my time. <laughs> I liked, I did like, I, tell you, I told you later, I liked all of the clocks that they used oh, in, yeah. in the scenes. Like almost every room had these fancy clocks. <laughs> I'm not sure what that's trying to tell us, but uh, those are cool clocks. They did focus on them a lot. Yeah, like, they even like zoomed in on yeah. them. I'm like, I don't get it. Are they running out of time? It doesn't feel like they are. You have to let us know if there's a bomb under the table. Yes. You can't just tell us the time. Yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. Save yourself some time. Don't watch it. You don't need to. Or watch it and let us know what you think. You can tell us we're wrong. Time travel. Yeah. So in science fiction... The action of traveling through time into the past or future. Or, the central premise for these stories oftentimes involves changing history either intentionally or by accident, and the ways by which altering the past changes the future and creates an altered present or future for the time traveler when they return home, which is kind of what we talked about. Yeah. In other instances, the premise is the past cannot be changed, or that the future is predetermined, and the protagonist's actions turn out to be either inconsequential or intrinsic to events as they originally unfolded. Okay. Some stories focus solely on the paradoxes and the alternate timelines that come with time travel rather than the traveling itself. They often provide some sort of social commentary as time travel provides a necessary distancing effect that allows science fiction to address contemporary issues in like metaphorical ways. And I thought that was such like a really great summary of how people use time travel in story. Oh, and it's beautiful because Stanyard says this too, is that's the one concept that scientists can't logically grasp. Therefore, the opportunities for it are immense. So cool. And I'm glad you said all of those definitions because that's what I mean. There's so many different directions you can go with that. And all of them are perfect for social commentary. Like what does that say about unchanging fate? Or what does that say about trying to change the past and then affecting the future negatively and making it worse? You know, all these fictional possibilities and it makes for really exciting stories. Um, So the episode we'll talk about, this is actually, I think, my favorite episode. 
I know I've said that quite a few times, but like, I think this is actually my favorite episode. It's called The Odyssey of Flight 33, and it's not the one you're thinking it is. It's not the creature on the wing of the plane, because that's the famous plane one. This is season two, episode 18. It was written by Rod Serling. And it came out in 1961, and I do have a clip, but maybe we should do, let's talk first, and then we'll do the clip, right? The captain of a major airliner carrying many souls is lost. After feeling a boost, they lower the plane to find that they've gone back in time. (laughs) Another boost, and they still haven't returned to their own time. The crew and passengers low on fuel have no choice but to go for the final boost and find their way home before they run out of fuel. Maybe I should mention that the first time they go back in time is is like prehistoric. Yeah. (laughs) Dinosaurs. Yeah. It's great. It's horrible, but it's great. Like claymations. Yeah. Yeah, So cute. (laughs) And then the second time they were actually closer to their time, but they could tell they were a few years off because something hadn't been invented yet or yeah they didn't know what jets were right right and they didn't know what radar was and they also saw the new york world's fair oh that's right which had ended way before their time uh so this is serling's intro you're riding on a jet airliner en route from london to new york you're at thirty-five thousand feet atop an overcast and roughly 55 minutes from Wild airport but what you've seen occur inside the cockpit of this plane is no reflection of the aircraft or the crew It's a safe, well-engineered, perfectly designed machine. The problem is simply that the plane is going too fast, and there is nothing within the realm of knowledge, or at least logic, to explain it. Unbeknownst to the passengers and crew, this airplane is heading into an uncharted region, well off beaten track of commercial travelers. It's moving into the Twilight Zone. (laughs) Sorry, I had to. I think that's the only, like, fun intro that gets me in there, you know? Yeah. It's the New York World's Fair. The New York World's Fair? But that means we'd be back in 1939. We came back. We came back. Dear God, not far enough. Can't land. Can't land in LaGuardia. Can't land in 1939. Gotta try again. That's nice. And the music. That was a very well-designed episode. And it's actually, what I found out is that for the time, it was considered the modern rendition of the Flying Dutchman story. Do you want to give us a little tiny recap on that real quick? Sure. The Legend of the Flying Dutchman. I went to do a little bit more research because what I knew was from Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) As I'm sure most of you all listening remember Flying Dutchman from Pirates of the Caribbean. It is a real ghost legend, and it is from the decade of Pirates of the Caribbean, the East India Company, when they sent ships out for trade and other things, but it belonged to that company. But one of them, the Flying Dutchman, apparently never made port. They lost track of them, and there was no wreckage or remnants of them. So the legend sort of grew from the 1800s into the 1900s, and it became a ghost story because some of the sailors started seeing in high storms they would see a ship in the mist so creepy i love it they would send message to them to see if they could hear them yeah and it never went anywhere like the message never got anywhere i have chills all over my body i know right (laughs) i right and so apparently it's a ghost crew they try to make contact with those ships that see them but of course in the ghost realm it can never reach them like that's their destiny is to never be found and (sighs) never make port that's why in Pirates of the Caribbean, they can't be on land, right? right. That plane has ooh, that I plane know. has that same destiny? Is that what it means? Yeah. You want to tell I, me about that? I mean, I just, I love the, you'll read the, the exit 
of it, but it's one of my favorite exits because it, it brings like such wonder. Do you want to read it? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A global jet airliner in the year 1961, but now reported overdue and missing. And by now searched for on land, sea and air by anguished human beings, fearful of what they'll find. But you and I know where she is. You and I know what's happened. So if some moment, any moment, you hear the sound of jet engines flying atop the overcast, engines that sound desperate, shoot up a flare or do something. That would be Global 33 trying to get home. I just love that so much. It's so like eerie. I mean, ghost stories are so cool to adapt to modern tales because they never die they're always in our psychology as well you can't ignore ghost stories because there's truth there and it's i like that this is when this story came out because even now i mean it's still true now like with the malaysian flight right there's still planes that disappear but i just there's something about like technology nowadays and like satellites and radar and elon musk and like everybody (laughs) else that it like takes away some of the mystery even like the Bermuda Triangle still has more mystery around it than I expect it to, even though everybody laughs at it. It's like, well, no, but we need these places that we can't always explain and that are mysterious because that's how we get that out of our system. Yeah. So I, I, I love this story. And there's like six people in the cockpit. Almost, I don't think they were completely booked up, but there's quite a few souls on board. That's what they call them in the plane industry, souls. Rather than passengers. Or yeah. men. <laughs> no, no, let's go with souls. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? It's nice. And it's, it's you know, there's like a couple of scenes or a couple of quick clips where you kind of see people like worried. There was that captain guy. But for the most part, you don't see like panic. You don't see people freaking out. Like this is not the the mob on Maple Street, you know? Right. This is more like, okay, everybody just hang on. Right, right. <laughs> We're going to make it home. And that feels very Flying Dutchman to me. It's like almost like a denial of the situation. And that's what perpetuates it to continue on as a ghost, as ghost stories. It makes for a kinder fate, but it's also like tragic. There's a lot of TV shows that still use those things to explore different kinds of stories. And you get like in the X-Files, for instance, they get on a ship in the Bermuda Triangle. And it's like this really interesting mix of the present time and the past time. Scully is in the past and Mulder's in the present. And they're, like, trying to find each other, but they're in two different times on the same ship. And it's just so fun. It's so fun. And it's mind trip, you know? It's, like, the things that you always think about, but you don't really get to see a lot of. And so I think it's really cool that we get these ghost stories in in these different forms of storytelling. Especially a TV show where, you know, the Twilight Zone and the X-Files have a lot of strange things that happen. But some of the tamest episodes are these ones because they're like the closest to our old primitive selves. You know, they don't have a lot of spectacle in them usually. They're they're more about the like eeriness of it. What did you think of the episode? I felt like everything was well balanced and it didn't feel scary because the passengers weren't freaking out like you said. That always calms me down. Like, I get distracted by the character's fear when it escalates. So in this one, I'm glad that didn't happen because then I could feel the eeriness of their situation. And it was kind of funny to see the little claymation diamonds for a second. And they were like, where are we? And he looks out the window and is like, Rrr. I'm like, aw. They just need to update that graphic. And then it won't be as distracting. Or maybe it would be more distracting. I don't know. He's just like insert a black and white of a Jurassic Park T-Rex. Like roaring. Perfect. That wouldn't be distracting at all. 
So the next theme is another kind of freaky deaky one. It's alternate universes. The definition is a hypothetical self-contained plane of existence coexisting with one's own, which is kind of pleasant when you say it that way. Totally. <laughs> Matter of factly. <laughs> well, do you want to hear Stanyard's I do. little uh, commentary on this? <laughs> so it focuses on the possible outcomes of the theory of a parallel universe, that for every action in our universe, there is an unlimited number of possible counter reactions created in an alternative universe. And for every person in our universe, there are counterparts in those other parallel universes. So it's this idea that it's just, it just goes on and on and on and on. And one of our choices can lead to a million other possible outcomes. Crazy. It's like unfathomable. Oh, that's right. Ir- irfathomable. <laughs> what? You're fathomable. <laughs> so yes, the episode is called Mirror Image, which is a perfect title. Season one, episode 21. And for a change of pace, we have a female hero. Ah, that's a good point. Would you like to tell us about her? So while waiting at a bus stop, Mrs. Barnes believes she's going mad. For one, she sees her bag in a different place, or she's told she's done something or said something that she doesn't remember saying or doing. Terrifying. I know. (laughs) And finally, when she sees two of herself in a mirror reflection. But then the twist and the irony comes when a stranger starts to check in on her if she's okay. And and she realizes that her alternative universe doppelganger has entered her dimension and is possibly trying to kick her out of it. And she says all this out loud to him. And then the stranger, believing that she's crazy, calls (laughs) the cops and they basically take her away. Once uh, alone in the bus station, the same things start happening to the stranger. It's so and, freaky. Yeah, and his story even ends weirder because he immediately sees his doppelganger and he's catching the bus and he starts chasing after him. Yeah. Like realizing that the the loop is just going to continue at this bus station for every person who sits there. They're going to meet their doppelganger and it'll just be non-ending. Oh, right? Chills. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's freaky. Um, I really like that there was a female main character. It kind of sucks that they had to take her to the nut house at the end of the episode. (laughs) But, I mean, you know, it's cool. They'll probably do the same thing to the dude. Right. Makes Um, any difference. One of the things I really liked about this episode is that it creates, like, this whole other world that you don't see. Because it starts off very real. Very real. She's sitting in a bus station. Bus is late. And she, like, goes up to the counter. And he's like, what are you doing here again? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. This kind of happens a few times, and she really has no idea what he's talking about. And we don't know because we just got there, and we're kind of with her. The bag thing happens where she notices her bag behind the counter, but her bag was next to her where she was sitting, and then it's gone, and then it reappears later. I feel like if you're going to go insane, that's how it starts. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, just one little thing feels a little off, but then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I'm insane. <laughs> right, right. It like just builds up. Yeah. Like it starts with that real small, tiny thing. But then you're right. It escalates to our dramatic theme of mirrors again. And this idea that the mirror holds your shadow. In this case, your doppelganger. And oh, maybe I did write the definition of the doppelganger. The term comes from an age-old German folktale. And their theory was that all living creatures had a spirit double who is invisible but identical to the living. And these second selves are perceived as being distinct from ghosts because ghosts appear only after death. 
But these ones will sometimes be described as the spiritual opposites or the spiritual negative of their human counterparts. It's mostly the darker side of your current self is the idea. Which is cool. And I, I definitely, you see it used in the context, not of darkness, but just as a copy. Ah. So I like that that's part of it is that your alter ego again, right? But the dark side. And that, that scene, I mean, the, the mirror scene is like the freakiest for me because I hate mirrors as we talked about. But she opens the bathroom. She's in the bathroom and she opens the bathroom door. She's looking in the mirror and she sees herself, her doppelganger, sitting where she was sitting on the bench out in the bus station. And at that point, it's just like over. You know, <laughs> She's just like lost it at that oh point, which God. I don't blame her. I'm like, yeah, I would lose it too if I looked over and saw myself. It's just so creepy. And then when the stranger comes and shows, I think, a typical kindness. I think in, in the 50s and 60s, people would be helpful like that. But yeah. It, so that's what makes the twist of his situation then so terrifying to me. Oh. Like it was a pattern. It didn't matter who you Ooh. were. It was going to happen to you at that bus station. Interesting. And weren't you the one who said that the, you have a theory that it was that place Mm-hmm. That had that cycle that would always mm-hmm. happen. Because it spawned this other world for me. Because in the end, we're out of the bus station. Ah. And I felt like that brought it out a little bit more into the real world. Uh-huh. But I, I like this concept. This keeps happening. And every time it happens, the person that we lose to the other side has gained a little bit more knowledge. So like whoever he runs into, if he runs into somebody he'll kind of pass on something to somebody else. And then, like, eventually, you'd have, like, a war, right? Oh, my gosh. Between the, like, doppelgangers and the people from the actual reality. And, like, are the other doppelgangers, like, do they, like, get restored when the doppelganger is gone? Oh, my god! Like, there's so many cool things you could do with that. It's like a, like a tear in the seam. How many are coming in and what are the rules and... Are they trying to expand that? And why are they coming here? Is their alternate universe the reflection of ours like a doppelganger? So it's the darker side? You know what I mean? There's so many questions I have. (laughs) I love that. It'd be super fun. Very creative. Yeah. So Serling's exit. Obscure and metaphysical explanation to cover a phenomenon. Reasons dredged out of the shadows to explain away that which cannot be explained. Call it parallel planes or just insanity. Whatever it is, you'll find it in the Twilight Zone. Mm. It's pretty tame, considering that the last part of it is him, like, running crazily after his doppelganger. Right? Uh, The next theme is aliens, a.k.a. extraterrestrials. Hypothetical or fictional being from outer space, especially an intelligent one. And science fiction aliens are both metaphors and real possibilities. (laughs) One can probe the nature of humanity with aliens that, by contrast, illustrate and comment upon human nature. Still, as evidenced by widespread belief in alien visitors, UFOs, and efforts to detect extraterrestrial radio signals, humans also crave companionship in a vast, cold universe, and aliens may represent hopeful images of the strange friends we may have been unable to find. Thus... Aliens will likely remain a central theme in science fiction until we can actually encounter them. That was by Gary Westfall. I just thought it was, like, really succinct. That was a great description. And not just scary. It was, like, hopeful. Yeah. Another format for imagination because we have no evidence or science backing any of it up yet. So until then, yeah. it's unlimited. So the episode, probably one of the most famous episodes, is called To Serve Man. 
That's season three, episode 24. It was actually based on a book or a short story called To Serve Man by Damon Knight. And the teleplay was by Rod Serling. He could always pick out the, the good stuff. Yeah. And it came out in 1962. And the original story appeared in November 1950 um, in the issue of Galaxy Science Fiction magazine. Nice. Yeah. It's very nerdy. I also <laughs> love the name Damon Knight. I know. It's a great name. I'm like, damn. <laughs> you mean Damon. Damon. <laughs> when aliens land peacefully on Earth with the intent of, quote unquote, serving man, all nations seem convinced of their intentions and even become excited when the aliens offer them rides to their home planet. Meanwhile, two American decoders are working to interpret the text of sorts that one of the aliens left behind, the title of which they decipher to mean to serve man. They're convinced, like everybody else, that they're here for good intentions. And the aliens even demonstrate those intentions. They, like, build crops and and they even do a lie detection test. You know, th- everything's looking good so far. But the government is still going to these decoders and saying, work on it. Just work on it. So the twist then, when one of the decoders finally translates the text correctly, she is only able to deliver the message to her coworker as he's stepping onto the spaceship to go to their planet she's able to shout at him it's a cookbook so the term to serve man is actually to serve man (laughs) i should say se versus su serve ah so he's basically being prepared to be eaten so yeah still gives me shivers (laughs) yeah i can see why this is a famous episode it's very clever like i said before it depicts aliens as much more clever than we could ever be as far as invading or getting their resources that they need because they study their opponents. What a concept. <laughs> and they even placate to what we want. I mean, it's the perfect setup. What did you think? It totally was. Yeah. It's terrifying. <sighs> because that's, they do help. And it's it's smart also. Like, it's like I, I respect it to some degree. Because they're not just going to wipe them out for the earth. They're going to eat them, right? So they're making earth better. And they're like... They are, people are going on trips and coming back. Like, they are keeping up this facade of, we're your friends, we're here to help, let us let us help you. And the coders, um, they were interesting. I mean, it was nice to have a female coder, too. That yeah. was a really nice twist. They were, like, it felt to me like they were kind of going rogue. Like, it felt like all the governments and most of the population was like, yeah, this is cool. You know, once once all the officials kind of were like, yeah, I think we can trust these guys. It felt like they were kind of just doing their work to do it because they didn't have to worry about anything anymore. Right. And I I liked that, too. I like that she especially is like, I still have to do something and I still want to know what's in this text. And he, he, on the other hand, the other guy is just kind of like, yeah, that's cool. Whatever. You know, I'm just going to go on a trip. You know, after yeah. a while, he's like, I'm done. <laughs> he's convinced as much as anybody. Yeah. He even says, why should we mess with it? They're giving us paradise or something yeah. along those lines. Yeah, which, pff, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about paradise before. Right, right. Be cautious. So it's just, yeah, when, when she yells that at him as he's getting onto the UFO, he can't get off. And the big alien's just, like, pushing him in. <laughs> it's not violent. They don't yell. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not a cause of panic for anyone. And that just goes to show even more that that's how our destruction will be. Right, right. <laughs> Quiet. <laughs> Whimper. Yeah, really. 
And I, I thought the look of the alien was interesting for this one. They, I think they kind of had the opportunity to make it theatrical. They don't always do that, which is great because it doesn't always need to be the focus. But this one is like, okay, well, it is about an alien landing. So we need to see the species and interact with it. And I like that they communicate telepathically versus verbally. Right. So there's a lot of little details in there. Yeah. Again, from probably the original story, but I'm glad they depict it. This episode kind of plays into the bad alien theme, which we get quite a few of in Twilight Zone, which makes sense. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I guess Star Trek came out at the same time. It was in the 60s, but I think good aliens is, is a bigger concept now than it was then. But the exit for To Serve Man. One cup of flour. (laughs) (laughs) The recollections of one Michael Chambers with appropriate flashbacks and soliloquy, or more simply stated, the evolution of man, the cycle of going from dust to dessert, the metamorphosis from being the ruler of a planet to an ingredient in someone's soup. It's tonight's bill of fare from the Twilight Zone. So good. Love it. (laughs) So this other episode is a little bit more fun than that. Nobody gets cooked as part of a meal. The episode's called Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up, which should give you an idea of the humor in it. Season 2, episode 28, is written by Rod Serling. I just made a note that it felt very fun X-File-y. Like, I think the X-File, the fun X-File episodes that they did very much harken back to this kind of thing. Agreed. But tell us about it, please. So during a snowstorm, two state troopers trace odd footprints back to a diner, inside which a busload of travelers have stopped when they're prevented from crossing an icy bridge. The cops are convinced that the footprints were made by an alien. And when trying to question the travelers, the scene turns into a murder mystery (laughs) that comes to a close when the bridge is reported to be safe to cross and the passengers return to the bus. So the twist then, that same night, the diner cook is visited again by one of the passengers who reveals his three arms (laughs) and says he is a colonizer from Mars. And then a bigger twist (laughs) is that the diner cook then takes off his cook's hat yeah, and he reveals a third eye. <laughs> so he's like, well, we uh, we people from Venus have already begun, so you have to kind of get in line. <laughs> I mean, his dialogue is much more clever than that, but that's sort of the, oh, hey, well, you're going to hear it right now. <laughs> what are you, some kind of magician? Who, me? Oh, hardly. I ought to explain that the name isn't really Ross. And uh, I wasn't really going to Boston. No, I was sent as a kind of advance scout. You know these uh, cigarettes, do you call them? They taste wonderful. We haven't got a thing like this on Mars. That's incidentally where I come from. We're beginning to colonize. My friends will be arriving very shortly. I think they're going to like it here. It's a lovely area, so... So remote, so pleasant, so off the beaten track. Just the perfect spot for a colony, don't you think, Mr. Haley? You see, Mr. Ross, my name isn't Haley. And I do agree with you, this is an extraordinary place to colonize. We folks on Venus had the same idea. We got it several years ago. And I think I really ought to tell you now that your friends are not coming. They've been intercepted. 
Oh, a colony is coming. But it's from Venus. <laughs> I know it was kind of a long clip, but it's just such a great conversation. <laughs> it, yeah, because it's so nonchalantly like, oh, well, all your people have been intercepted, so we'll be taking over, actually. It feels very much like, yeah, like a Hercule Perot Agatha Christie book at the very end where he, like, sums up everything. That's kind of what it feels like. So oh, I totally. just, it's fun. Um, and the witty, I was going to say, the witty dialogue, I think, helped with that, too. Because it's basically, it looks it looks like a setup for a play. So whatever they say to each other, they're kind of, like, shooting it across the diner. Yeah. And, and it's it's witty, and some of it's quick, and some of it's weird. And you know, or they like start blaming each other. You know, it, it, it's yeah. very... It's very fun in the same way Clue was very fun. Right. You know? What did you think? Yeah. No, I didn't think about it. Like, I could totally see this being on a stage. Right. Because right. it definitely has that contained setup. And at the end, I mean, it got, it's not dark, but at the end, the Mars guy tells him that the bus crashed, right? Oh, and all yeah. the passengers are gone or whatever. Right. And it was just like, cool and it's like the one guy that you want to be the bad guy was the bad guy oh it's like the old white guy yeah you know and i liked that too and then there was like a young couple where the girl like for a second like half a second like blamed her boyfriend she's like are you the alien i was like oh my god i'm really (laughs) turning on each other come on and there was like the town weirdo who was like hilarious but like everybody thinks he's like crazy and he was having a great time. And he probably looks more like the alien than any of them because his eyes were sort of bulbous and and he, he acted very eccentric. And, and then you have the two gung-ho, you know, town troopers who yes. are like, well, you know, here we do it this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and kind of like the mob on Maple Street, like there's the jukebox starts up on its own. Like there are oh, a couple yeah. little things that happen that kind of prove to you that, yes, this is sci-fi. This is not paranoia. Right. And it, it's actually our second example of bad aliens Ah. this was also sort of a negative take on aliens it's kind of hard to tell if it's not just in their banter that they're bad aliens Mm -hmm. rather than being weirdly or colonists you're right meaning they don't focus on that part no yeah i'm not convinced that they're bad by the end of the episode for sure i mean they definitely don't have good intentions but i'm (laughs) not distracted by oh they're gonna like kill everybody no no i mean their dialogue's so fun and quirky and i'm just like oh well they're like us so Maybe this won't be too bad. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not really about that. And I think that's good because it would take away from it. Totally. The third episode that we looked at for Aliens, it's called People Are Alike All Over. And season one, episode 25. And it was also based on a book, I believe. It's either a book or a short story called Brothers Beyond the Void by Paul W. Fairman. And the teleplay was by Rod. came out in 1960, so it was in their first year. And... Fun fact, it includes Roddy McDowell is in it, which is super fun. And I think I'll let Charlotte tell us what it's about. Scientist Conrad and his optimistic co-astronaut are <laughs> headed to Mars. Conrad being fearful of the Martians and his co-worker being hopeful that the Martians are just as humane as we are. But when a fatal accident kills his co-astronaut, Conrad is left to confront his fears and land on Mars on his own. And, of course, he confronts Martians when he gets there. Of course. (laughs) But to his surprise, the Martians appear accommodating. And even a female Martian shows particular kindness and sympathy to Conrad. And he's most pleased, especially when they provide him with a dwelling that looks exactly like a, a human dwelling from 
Well, at least or, from the 1950s. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when things were, like, weird. Yeah. yeah. And it looks kind of suburban. And, yeah. You know. But then the twist is, when he tries to leave the home, Conrad finds he has been locked inside. And then opening this, like, living room curtain thing, he finds a crowd of Martians staring amused at him through these bars. They look like jail bars. Yeah. And then there's a label that says, Earth Creature in His Native Habitat. <sighs> So as the news of this zoo-like environment sinks in, he watches the female Martian leave the crowd a little bit bitter. He acknowledges the truth that his co-worker spoke before they left, which is that people are alike all over. Damn. Uh, one of the things I wrote down is if they have minds and hearts, it means they have a soul, which makes them all people. That's what he says before he dies. Oh. And that's like, it's very Star Trek-y. I guess we're talking about Star Trek a lot, sorry. But you know, they always call them people. Because it's not really about people, you know? Right. I also wrote down, people have small brains. I don't know why I wrote that, but is That's that part of it? Sterling's intro. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that makes more sense. Yeah. And it's interesting because Sterling's intro comes after a little bit of a dialogue. They're actually looking at the rocket that they're going to board. It's cool because Conrad, the scientist, is talking to this more spiritual pilot. He's speaking of people in terms of God, of God's creation. And then that sometimes throws me off when we're talking about aliens because God is very much our creation. But that's how we relate to things that we don't know how to explain, I yeah. guess. So this clip is from that little cool. part. I'm sure that when God made human beings, he developed them from a fixed formula. They'd be the same here on Earth as in the furthest reaches of space. People on Mars, wherever they're able to exist... They'd be the same. Wherever they're able to exist, they'd be the same. And the fact is that in every reaches of the universe, God exists, so that formula will be the same. Right. Right. Interesting. Which in this episode kind of supports that theory, because if we think of who we are now in God's, quote unquote, God's creation, meaning the darker side of our creation, is that we would treat new species very similarly like we in do. the zoo. Yeah. <laughs> we do it with our own earth beings. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the irony being that when he says, like, you were right, people are alike all over. It's more despairingly yeah. a truth that he realizes rather than the hope, which is depressing in a lot of ways. It's one of those non-redeeming sort of ones. Except for the detail you mentioned. <laughs> do you want to tell us the detail you mentioned? I mean, I guess I put a lot into these, but I liked at the end when he's looking at this crowd who's staring at him in his natural native environment, that the woman the, who he liked is like visibly upset by it and disturbed by it. And she like pulls away from the guy she's standing with and, and leaves. And for me, that was a hopeful moment because it felt like there was room there for us to turn back. People are like all over where there's humanity wherever you go as well. If she was just, like, smiling with the rest of them, I'd be like, oh, my God, like, she played it, you know? Yes. But she's upset, and I feel like that leaves room to prove that people are, like, all over and that she can break him out or help him or something. Stop you know? the cycle. Yeah. yeah. And it, that's all it takes is one person against the crowd, right, to make change. I was just going to point out, funnily enough, the first episode of Star Trek, the original series, or at least the pilot episode, was very much based on this episode of Twilight Zone. Even more so because they actually use the same actress, actor, the woman. Which is awesome. I know, I know. <laughs> Did you have a um, the ending for that? Yeah, so the exit... 
species of animal brought back alive. Interesting similarity in physical characteristics to human beings in head, trunk, arms, legs, hands, feet. Very tiny, undeveloped brain. Comes from primitive planet named Earth. Calls himself Samuel Conrad. And he will remain here in this cage with the running water and the electricity and the central heat as long as he lives. Samuel Conrad has found the Twilight Zone. This feels more like a humdinger one. Mm -hmm. We're still in this world and we're not going to explain the theme because you get it, right? Uh, our, is this our final? It is. Our final theme of the evening, supernatural ability. Definition. Attributed to a power that seems to violate or go beyond natural forces. Or, meaning beyond nature, describes anything that pertains to or is caused by something that can't be explained by the laws of nature. Nice. We saved this one for last because it's the fun one. It's called A World of His Own. Season 1, episode 36. It was actually the last episode of the season. And this one was actually written by Richard Matheson, who we talked about early on. He was one of the first core writers besides Rod. It's interesting that it's Matheson because he was into terror stories. So this felt like different. And I don't, I don't know. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, using a magical voice recorder, a successful playwright is able to bring physical life to his characters. And this includes a fictional girlfriend who has fallen in love with him. So when the author's wife catches them together, her husband, rather than fessing up to an affair, tries to show her how the voice recorder works and even conjures an elephant and then burning the elephant's description on tape he shows her that the elephant can then disappear like that's the proof that's the cycle of how he creates the character and then if he needs to destroy it for any reason he takes the tape from the recorder and burns it so when the wife remains unconvinced the playwright then pulls a section of his tapes containing the original description of his wife and burns that so when his wife disappears it leaves him free to love his newest creation she burns it she burns it yeah oh Oh my god you're right how did i forget that okay so he pulls out the section of his tape containing the original description of his wife and then she inadvertent well she knows what she's doing but she's so she doesn't believe him she yeah in such disbelief that she throws it into the fire she's like sure it's yeah. fake whatever it takes her a while to like realize what's happening and then she disappears and I was she's like, yeah she's like i don't feel or she says i don't feel well or i don't feel right or something right and he's like well i just told you woman yeah <laughs> yeah that's interesting his immediate reaction was to record her into the recorder again right to recreate her right and then he was like hmm maybe not and then he instead brings back his girlfriend right yes from the beginning the concept is awesome the details of the episode are kind of whatever. Because there's no redemption here. There's no change here. Yeah. It's basically a, a farce, I guess. Which, again, is funny. And they make it even funnier when we tell you what happens. At, well, I guess we should tell you. <laughs> um, at the end, they break the fourth wall because Serling not only enters the scene, and he'll sometimes do that, but then... He interacts with the character. The playwright says, like, oh, Serling, you know, don't don't even, you know. Yeah. Well, what does he say? I actually wrote it down. Okay, good. Um, so Rod Serling appears on the set, and he says, we hope you've enjoyed tonight's romantic story on The Twilight Zone. At the same time, we want you to realize that it was, of course, purely fictional. In real life, such ridiculous nonsense could never, and then he gets cut off. Rod, you shouldn't, interrupt Gregory, who's the playwright. <laughs> The character of the playwright. Right. <laughs> Who walks over to his safe and pulls out a tape marked Rod Serling. 
I mean, this is him speaking, I mean, you shouldn't say such things as nonsense and ridiculous. He continues and throws the tape in the fire. Well, Rod Serling says, that's the way it goes. And, and then he, he fades away. Disappears. <laughs> <laughs> Cigarette and all. Right, right. <laughs> and then it continues as usual with his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> it was very appropriate for this episode to break the fourth wall and to play with that concept because there was no emotional change or... And I think we also both liked it because we can relate to creating characters and wanting to see them live in real life. Yeah, right. Yeah. What an awesome concept. Yeah. And we talked about gender swapping. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Our idea was to gender swap with a woman who wants to create a family as opposed to a man who wants his wife and his girlfriend. Right, right. Because <laughs> uh, that's been done a million yeah. times. Yeah. We're ready to update the story a little bit. I will have to say that I did like the wife. She was very theatrical. I loved her. Yeah. Um, but anyway, she was very entertaining to watch, even more so than the writer. He was boring. He was boring. So. She was, like, interesting. And it's like, yeah, you needed her, man, and you don't deserve her. Yeah. Like, your character is better. Both of your characters are better than you. Different scenarios. And if you updated it with different types of people and yeah. their situations. Yeah. And-, and it doesn't have to always be writing or speaking. It could be other forms of it, too. But oh, yeah. I like it as a general, like, trope, maybe. It's giving you permission to create people and destroy people. Yeah. That's super fun. <laughs> wow. <laughs> We've covered almost everything we could ever cover about the Twilight Zone. And and I'm glad that you you ended up liking some of it, right? I liked all of it. Usually, I like that. I love that. It's been a, you know, household favorite in my house <laughs> that's a really weird way of saying that <laughs> I used to watch it a lot as a kid and I watch it now and it's just something I can keep going back to and you're always guaranteed to get the chills from certain episodes and, and find humor in other ones and it's proven to me that it's one of the greatest TV shows ever written yeah I and I would agree with the small amount of episodes I've seen I think the formula is very clear and that's convincing to me because I love story if I'm convinced early on, it's because it's doing something amazingly right. So we're going to leave you with some words from Stuart Stanyard, who wrote The Dimensions of the Twilight Zone. And at the end of his chapter all about themes, I think he sums up what Twilight Zone did and meant and conjured and all that good stuff. So he writes, The characters of the zone exist as immortal icons of yesterday's black and white celluloid dreams, kept alive by qualities of a time unparalleled. Everlasting entities projected by light and shadow, they continue to offer their hard-earned lessons to generations of viewers from the limitless boundaries of the fifth dimension and into our own 